This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. Our scripture today is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come to you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. This is the gospel of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we are those who have been created and redeemed by the gift of your Son through Mary. Speak your living, creating word to us, we pray. And may we imitate her today in her response of faith and obedience. In Jesus' name and Jesus' name alone, we pray. Amen. Well, I actually get to preach from the New Testament after a long time in the Old Testament, and there'll be many more weeks yet in that first three quarters of the Bible. But today we get to meditate a week before Christmas on the very last Sunday in Advent. We get to meditate today on the Annunciation, which is just a very fancy Latin way of saying the announcement, the announcement of the angel Gabriel to the Virgin Mary that she would conceive and give birth to the Savior of the world. Now, if you're following the calendar properly, we would have, I would have preached on this back on March the 25th, which is the Feast of the Annunciation, exactly nine months before Christmas, but I'm afraid we're going to have to give Mary a very rapid pregnancy a week before Christmas. But I have been looking forward to this message for a long time because there is so much benefit to be had for us by meditating on the Virgin Mary and honoring her special role in the incarnation. Now, I feel a slight breeze up here from all the hairs rising on the back of your Protestant necks. Is this the Roman Catholic boogeyman that we've all had nightmares about? And I'm being facetious, but, you know, we really do have concerns as Protestants about what sometimes seems to us almost to be the worship of Mary as a mother goddess in certain forms of popular Catholicism. And the way that seems to diminish the role of her son, Jesus, as the only mediator between God and man. Still, we want our convictions to be driven by scripture, not by knee-jerk reactions to what we might see in other branches of Christianity, even if that is not official church teaching. 
I know for myself, I certainly would not want to be judged based on average evangelical folk religion. I was very interested to learn that last year, Pope Francis clarified once again, as he's done many times, that the Roman Catholic Church does not teach that Mary is a co-redemptrix with Christ. And speaking last March to an Italian newspaper, he said, the beautiful things that the church, the saints say to Mary, take nothing away from Christ's uniqueness as a redeemer. He is the only redeemer. Christ is the mediator par excellence, the bridge that we cross to turn to the father and the only redeemer. Every prayer that we give to God is for Christ with Christ and through Christ and are realized through his intercession. There is no other name by which we can be saved, the Pope insisted. And speaking as someone who longs for the healing of the divided body of Christ, I can only say, more of that, please, from Rome. And perhaps we as Protestants need to make a few corrections ourselves. And I wonder that in our anxiety not to worship Mary, not to give her an exaggerated role that would eclipse Jesus— we fall into the opposite error of diminishing her role so much that we've almost forgotten her. And we're neglecting to join God's call for all generations to call this woman blessed. And you might be very surprised to learn that the Protestant reformers had high views of Mary. Here's Luther. And if you can call anyone a Protestant, it's Martin Luther. Okay. I think this guy is very safe as a Protestant. And he wrote, Mary is the highest woman and the noblest gem in Christianity after Christ. She is nobility, wisdom, and holiness personified. We can never honor her enough. She is the true mother of God and bearer of God. Mary suckled God, rocked God to sleep, prepared soup and broth for God. Still, he wrote, honor and praise must be given her in such a way as to injure neither Christ nor the scriptures. How then can we praise her, he wonders. The true honor of Mary is the honor of God, the praise of God's grace. Mary is nothing for the sake of herself, but for the sake of Christ. And she bore Christ for me, not for herself. Mary does not wish that we come to her, but through her to God. So I want to say to you what the angel said to Mary. Fear not, Protestants, fear not. Mary is a beautiful woman full of the grace of God who points us to Jesus if we see her properly. You know, as we begin this wonderful gospel of Luke, we see that God is on the move. There have been these ancient prophecies to long-suffering Israel that finally, after centuries, are being fulfilled. And the very beginning of the book, the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah, this priest serving in the temple, and he tells him during his service that his barren wife, Elizabeth, is going to conceive, and that the child born to them, John, would be the forerunner of the Messiah. He will be the herald of the king who is going to rescue Israel and usher in a new age of peace, justice, and glory. You know, there are millions and millions of angels. I mean, there's a guardian angel for each one of us, but there are only two ever named in scripture, Gabriel and Michael. Michael is the great warrior Gabriel is the great messenger who always stands by the throne of God, ready to fly at his command to deliver the announcement of God's miraculous interventions to earth. And he's got an even greater task than appearing to Zechariah in the temple. A weightier message to deliver 
not to a priest in Jerusalem, but to a young girl in a forgotten village in Israel. You know, the little town of Nazareth was so small, only 500, maybe 1,000 people. It's not mentioned even once in the Old Testament. If you've read the Old Testament, there are a lot of names that are listed and a lot of places that are described in all those lists. Nazareth never makes the cut. You know, anyone ever been on the slow train in Georgia? Not the fast train to Batumi, but like the decrepit, old, rickety, slow train that you actually, it's so slow, you actually travel back in time, it feels like, when you go on it. It barely moves above walking speed, and it stops everywhere. But Nazareth was so small, it wouldn't even have merited a station on that slow train's route. I want to show you a painting if you have it there, Steve. This is a painting in the setting of the Mafa people in northern Cameroon. This is a painting of the Annunciation. And I feel if the Renaissance painters could paint Mary as a pale, blonde-haired northern European, surely this is appropriate because Jesus is the savior of all people, not just of Israel. And what they've captured in this painting is the very humble village setting in which the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary. Gabriel appears to a young woman, a virgin, who's pledged, who's betrothed to be married to a man named Joseph. Now, this girl, I hesitate even to call her a young woman, would probably have been only 14 or 15 years old. She's just a teenager. And in that culture, this virgin would have led a highly sheltered existence. Her sexual purity, carefully guarded by her family, the most precious thing she has socially, She never would have gone out in public alone, and no man would have come into her quarters except for her father and her brothers. Her name, we're told, is Mary. Miriam, which is by far the most common name in Roman Palestine at this time. That's why it's so confusing, all these different Marys in the gospel. Every other woman seems to have the name Mary. It's like the Hebrew Nino. This is a completely ordinary, unremarkable girl with the most ordinary, unremarkable name. She's about to embark on the exact same life every other girl of her age would have done in Israel. She's living in a sleepy, forgotten village with nothing to do. And then one day, out of the blue, this archangel appears to her and speaks these startling words. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Hail Mary, full of grace. Grace is the operative word. The divine favor with which Mary is filled is not her private collection of merit that she somehow earned and accumulated before God. It's the sheer gift of God who has chosen her out of all these teenage girls for this staggering destiny. The Lord is with you, Gabriel says. Not the Lord be with you. This is not a pious greeting. It's a statement of fact. Even this archangel who serves before the throne of God recognizes the divine presence with Mary. And it's no wonder that, as Luke tells us, when Mary heard these words, she was greatly troubled. She was highly disturbed. And she wondered what sort of greeting this might be. That word wondered is more often translated as pondered. And it's very characteristic of Mary that even when she's emotionally disturbed, as she is here, she's thinking. She's contemplating. She's turning things over in her mind. She's considering, pondering and treasuring things in her heart, not running off to her parents or her fiancé, carrying on a quiet internal dialogue with herself. 
This might only be a 14-year-old girl, but she's remarkably steady and self-contained. And Gabriel tells her, do not be afraid, Mary. You know, angels in the Bible are always having to tell people, don't be afraid. It's the first thing they say, because when an angel appears, it's not like this delicate little precious moments figurine. It's a terrifying supernatural being, and people are filled with terror. And Gabriel says to Mary, Mary, do not be afraid. You have found favor with God. What I bear is not a message of judgment, but of grace. You have found favor with God. The God, as the Bible reminds us, the God who opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then a stunning announcement. Mary, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary is being given the singular honor of becoming the mother of the Messiah, great David's greater son, the one that God is going to anoint to deliver the nation of Israel from its enemies, the one who's going to turn sinful, wandering, corrupt Israel back towards their God, and the one who's going to usher in a new reign of justice and peace, a reign that will never end. That's why this child is going to be called Jesus, which means God saves, God rescues. All the hopes and the longings of the faithful remnant Israel are about to be fulfilled. And of course, it's not just Israel. As Luke especially delights in showing, the Messiah is not just the Messiah for Israel. He's Christ for all the nations. But this is more than enough for Mary to take in at this moment. And I imagine after Gabriel finishes speaking, a long, long pause as Mary stares at him and lets these words sink in. As the song of Mary in Luke chapter 2 shows, Mary herself is one of the humble of Israel, one of the humble poor who's longing for God to show up and bring about the messianic reign of justice, to topple the proud from their thrones, to fill the hungry with good things. And this woman bears the name of Miriam well, because just like the sister of Moses and Aaron leads the people in a song of praise to God after his deliverance on the far side of the Red Sea, so the Virgin Mary is a prophetess who sings an exultant victory chant celebrating God's salvation for the whole nation of Israel. Oh yes, she rejoices for Israel. She rejoices for others. She rejoices for all the oppressed and the downtrodden. But this announcement deeply concerns herself in the most private and intimate way. Gabriel's message means that Mary is being called to be the vehicle in the most physical flesh and blood manner for the Messiah's entry into Israel. And you know, Mary may only be a 14-year-old from a small village, but she's not stupid. She knows how babies are made, and so she asks the obvious question, how will this be since I am a virgin? More literally, how will this be since I have not known a man? How is this going to happen? 
Now, it's not quite the same question that Zechariah had asked Gabriel in the temple. Zechariah's question was, how can I be sure of this? It was an expression of doubt in the word of God, for which Zechariah was temporarily struck dumb. And by the time of the Annunciation to Mary, he hasn't been able to speak for six months, and he's got three more long months of silence left. Mary's question is not a question of doubt. It's the more natural and innocent question of faith, which is, how is God going to carry out his plan? You know, there'd been plenty of angelic annunciations in the Bible before Gabriel appeared to Mary, beginning with Sarah, going all the way to Elizabeth. And the angel shows up in those stories and he tells a barren couple they will conceive. Still, every one of those stories had involved married women and their husbands conceiving through the natural way of sexual intercourse, the man's sperm fertilizing the woman's egg. And God's intervention in those stories was miraculous, but it was by way of God removing barriers to natural conception and allowing the processes of the body to work properly. So there seems to be something missing from this Annunciation story. And, and that's, that's the male. Speaking as a man myself, I feel a little grieved by this. Where is the man in this story? Aren't we missing a very key character in this birth narrative? And Mary's wondering the same question. And she needs a little clarification. Like, Gabriel, are you, are you talking about a year from now when I move into the home of Joseph and him and I consummate the marriage? Like, what's the timeline for this? What, are you, what exactly are you talking about? And Gabriel answers, Here's how this will happen, Mary. The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. In this utterly unprecedented work of God, male potency and virility is completely absent. And that's by design. And God wants to make it absolutely clear that this Savior is a gift from heaven, not a hero produced by human power. This is not a story about man becoming God, salvation from below, but this is salvation from above where God becomes man. And the infant that is going to be born to Mary nine months from now will be the first human being since Adam to have no human father. The humanity of Jesus is received entirely from the woman alone. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel, God with us. Now, how this happens to Mary is a mystery. We certainly shouldn't imagine it as sexual intercourse, like in the many, many tales of Greek gods who came down to sleep with and usually rape mortal women. Mary's conception is described by Gabriel not as an invasive penetration or violation, but as the enveloping presence and power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And then the angel tells her the surprising news that her relative Elizabeth has been pregnant for six months already, her barren relative, and no word from God will ever fail. The fact that a virgin birth is scientifically impossible and by the way, we moderns were not the first ones to figure that out. Human beings deduce that pretty early on, I would say. The fact that it's not scientifically possible is no obstacle to the God who created 
the universe. Who set in motion the ordinary laws of the universe, which he can freely adjust and overturn as he pleases. And Gabriel is done speaking, and he has nothing more to say. He can only wait for Mary's response. And her words come firm and steady. I am the Lord's servant. May his word to me be fulfilled. This is not mere passivity and acceptance. It's a courageous choice because in traditional cultures like Mary's, for a young woman to become pregnant before marriage is usually devastating for the woman. She couldn't expect, really expect anyone to believe this far-fetched story of an angel showing up to her, announcing a virgin birth. You can only expect an ugly divorce from her husband, most likely, who'd been betrayed. They were already contracted together. And if she wasn't stoned to death, she certainly would have been treated as damaged goods from that point on. She would have had well-founded fears and anxieties about her life being over. And she would have faced years of social shame in a small village, which we can't even imagine. This is what Mary was facing, a life potentially devastated and destroyed. Yet, this girl doesn't allow any doubts and fears she might have had to control her, but she bravely submits herself to the plan of God and offers herself to his sovereign plans. You know, God is not going to violently force himself upon Mary. God always works in synergy with human beings. And he invites us to use this precious gift of free will by which we're created in the image of God. And he invites us to cooperate with God as his fellow workers. Always the junior partner, of course, we're not equals. Yet, Every human being has the real dignity of playing an actual role in God's great cosmic drama of redemption. And that precious gift of free will, which human beings alone possess, we see in the very first pages of scripture, were tragically abused. And the first couple turned away from God. They used their free will to choose evil. And faithless Israel although invited by God again and again to freely respond in love to him, continually betrays and wanders from him. But here, Mary uses her freedom to submit herself to God as his handmaiden. The most tremendous thing granted to the human person is choice, freedom wrote the melancholy Dane Soren Kierkegaard. And if you want to save this gift of freedom and to keep it, there is only one way and the very same second to give it back to God and you yourself with it. I think that after Christ himself, that Mary may be the greatest example we have in scripture of what it means to trust and obey God. And this woman is the first disciple of Jesus. And I think what's particularly beautiful about Mary is how she demonstrates what Calvin McLean calls hospitality towards God. And she shows us that we too are called to welcome Christ into our lives, not with our bodies and our wombs the way that Mary was, 
but still to make space for the Son of God. Now, of course, we're saved by Christ and Christ alone. We're not saved by Mary. But though salvation is not by Mary, salvation comes through Mary. Because God graciously chose her womb to be the door by which his son came into the world. And her womb is like the dark and formless void in the opening pages of the Bible into which God speaks his new creation. You know, Mary's role had already been prophetically revealed in Genesis chapter 3, right? When after Adam and Eve make their fatal choice and fall into sin, God comes and he speaks of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Mary is the new Eve. You know, we're the first Eve, the mother of all living. She had brought death into the world by listening to the voice of the serpent. She'd responded to God in unbelief and disobedience and brought in disaster. And here is Mary, the mother of the new humanity, who brings life into the world by responding in faith and obedience, listening and submitting to God's word spoken through the angel. As you read through the Old Testament, you begin to see many types and pointers to the role that Mary plays in the incarnation of Jesus. You know, this text describes the virgin conception as her being overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and the power of God. And that word should immediately make us think of the book of Exodus and the glory cloud that overshadowed the temple and filled it with the presence of God. And here is Mary overshadowed by the spirit. The Shekinah glory cloud is coming on her womb. And as they read the Old Testament, the early Christians saw Mary as the New Testament fulfillment of the burning bush and the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. All these are created things. Let's be clear. Created things. They're not God. They're created things, but they've been made holy by the awesome presence of God upon and within them. These objects, which were never confused with God himself, yet were greatly honored and treated with holy fear because they were spaces for the presence of God. That's why I have to agree with the reformers, not just Luther, but Calvin and Zwingli as well, who believed in the perpetual virginity of Mary. Because I find it impossible to imagine that Joseph, who was a righteous and God-fearing man, I find it impossible to imagine that he would have violated the virginity of Mary after what she had borne any more than he would have opened the curtain of the Holy of Holies, walked in and lifted up the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. I can't say that as scriptural dogma, but that's my reading of the gospel account. The highest honor that we give to Mary is the title of the mother of God. And Steve, can you put up that slide? And I want to talk about this term briefly, theotokos, which means the God bearer. And I put this on the slide because I want to get it clear in your minds what I am and I'm not saying when we give Mary this title. We call Mary the God bearer, which was what theotokos literally means, the mother of God, because the child that Mary carried in her womb was her creator, the eternal word made flesh. And this title goes back to the 300s, to the 400s, where the church was making clear 
Not so much the titles of glory and honor that Mary deserved, but exactly who it was that she bore within her. And the child that Mary bore within her was God himself. When we say Mary is the mother of God, we're not saying that Mary is eternal. We're not saying that she is part of the Trinity or the mother of the Trinity. We're not saying that she is the source of the son of God's eternal divinity. We are saying that when the word became flesh, he took on the flesh of Mary. And the child she bore in her womb was not merely a human being or a great prophet. He was the son of God himself. And this particular icon speaks to that because this is known as the lady of the sign. And you can't quite make it out on the screen, but you can see Jesus is shown within her womb. This is obviously not a literal depiction, but a theological and symbolic one. And you can see he's surrounded by the stars of heaven. And this particular icon often has the words underneath it, wider than the heavens. In other words, the womb of Mary is the space which holds the one who is beyond all space. She contains, mysteriously and paradoxically, the one who cannot be contained. Mary is the mother of God. She's a creature. She's a human being. She was graciously chosen by God to be the bearer of his eternal son. One last thing I want to put on the screen, which is these few verses from Revelation chapter 12, where John sees a great sign that appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. You know, John was given the eyes to see what is really going on in this world. He received an apocalypse, a revelation, the curtain being pulled back so he could discern what God was actually doing. And in this lowly, humble young lady, John discerned a majestic figure. Mary, of course, is a creature like us, a human being who's also subject to sin and death. And yet, she's clothed with these royal symbols. She is clothed with queenly glory and honor. And Mary is described in Revelation in terms that no other human being in the Bible, except for Christ himself, is described. We honor Mary because she gave us Christ. And only for that reason. As Luther said, Mary's nothing for the sake of herself, but for the sake of Christ. She does not wish that we come to her, but through her to God. She's part of the great cloud of witnesses at the very head saying, behold, the Lamb of God. It's one thing I have to say I greatly appreciate about Orthodox iconography of the Theotokos of Mary, because you'll almost never see in Orthodox icons of Mary, you will almost never see her by herself. She always bears Christ in her womb, or she's pointing to Jesus. She's never shown by herself. And I love that about Mary. And you know, Mary deserves to be honored as much as we dare to honor another creature. And we give honor to whom honor is due. Because through her faithful obedience to God's call, she gave us the greatest possible gift, Jesus himself. 
and she will always be beloved and always be called blessed because of him. Yes, we salute, we bless, we honor Mary as a creature, as a fellow human being, someone who also needed to be saved and redeemed by Jesus. We honor her, but we worship her son as our creator, and we trust in him as our savior. So let's pray today that we would listen to the witness of Mary and imitate her in our own response of faith to God and our own hospitality to the presence of Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the gift of your Son in the world, the only Savior, the only mediator, our only hope of eternal life. And we bless you for all those whom you have used and continue to use in this world for the furtherance of your kingdom, especially the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, who's been so highly favored by you, O Lord. Help us to look at her and then past her and through her as she points us to her son, Jesus Christ. And may we follow her example in putting our faith in him, of rejoicing in the salvation that he has come to bring. And O Lord, may we imitate her by welcoming Christ into our lives into our families, into this church, into this world. In his name alone do we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.